Hello and welcome to The Price of Football, the podcast that looks at the money behind the beautiful game. And this week we'll be looking for the money all the way from Barcelona to the Far East of London and then on to the actual Far East. I'm Kevin Day and he is Kieran Maguire, football finance expert at Liverpool University and, I discover this week, former winner of the Le Mans 24-hour race. Kieran, I, we, we had a long phone call chat this week and I was quite excited to discover that you were a boy racer. I'm, I'm not. I'm, I'm, I've never had a ticket in my life. I'm very, very restrained, as you'd expect a, a qualified chartered accountant to be. You've got a very fast car, though, it turns out, haven't you? I, I've got a very fast car, but uh, I also have a very loving wife who uh, who bought me the car, uh, for which I am eternally grateful. You also can't tell the difference between red and green on traffic lights, which seems to be a combination that's made for disaster, isn't it? Uh, yes, yeah, there have been one or two uh, scary moments for my passengers when I've uh, quite cheerfully gone through red lights, uh, c- convinced that, that there wasn't a light there to have to, to, have to worry about, uh, but uh, ne- never had an accident to date. That's, that's good to know. I'm pleased to hear you're still doing the, the Uber stuff as well. It's great. Um, Later in this episode, we will hear from Kevin Blow. Uh, Kevin is the treasurer of Clapton Community Football Club, arguably the first English club to play in mainland Europe, uh, which has very recently gained control of its ground for the first time in its 122-year history. I say arguably, Kieran, because if I say definitely, we will get emails saying, actually, I think you'll find the War Office Reserves sent a team to play an unofficial game in Romania in 1864 from somebody who was definitely been to all 92 league grounds so we'll, we'll stick with arguably at the moment what is not in doubt is that Clapton's ground is called the old spotted dog uh, which is up there with the dripping pan and Sellers Park as the best football ground names ever uh, dripping pan's down near you isn't it Lewis yeah Lewis yeah Lewis is one of my local clubs uh, yeah they're very progressive club um, they, they pay uh, both the men and the women the same amounts and uh, yeah they're, they're, they're doing okay uh, yeah they've, they've made reasonable progress uh, in, in recent years Always pleased to hear that a team in Sussex is doing well, Kieran. You know, (laughs) my goodwill towards that county is endless, especially when there's no football season. Um, It's Thursday, which means it's news day. And our first story is good news, actually, for Clapton and its fans, because fans are to be allowed back to attend games in the seventh tier of football and below. So that's the leagues below National League North and South. That's right. It effectively starts at the Northern Prem, the Isthmian League and the Southern League. Um, so those clubs who are so reliant upon uh, match day income to, uh, to to pay the bills uh, will now be able to have some form of of attendance. Uh, and uh, you know we, we are critical of uh, of our elected officials at times, but uh, credit's got to be given to the MPs who lobbied for this um, mm. and, and have pushed this through. Um, there will be social distancing taking taking place at matches, um, and, and effectively you'll be sort of you'll be restricted to six people groups. So how that's going to be policed or stewarded, you know, I'm hoping people will just use common sense and form sort of their own little bubbles. Um, test and trace will be required, as, as we often see these days. I don't know if you've been to uh, a restaurant or, or or some other establishments recently where where people are staying there for a long time. But it, but it is uh, it, it, it is a step forwards. Um, my only concern is um, if, if you take a look at the clubs at Tier Seven who who are the most popular. So you know the likes of South Shields uh, in the Northern Prem, they, they averaged seventeen hundred uh, fans per match last season, which was superb, um, and they had a highest crowd of three thousand two hundred. So it, it could be that if, uh, if if matches at higher levels are not taking place. Uh, you know, some people, you know, you know I, I might, might think of popping down to Lewis myself, for example. Um, you, you might end up being turned away. Uh, the, these clubs are unlikely to have sort of electronic tickets and things of this nature. But I think they'll cross that bridge when, when they come to it. Yeah. If by some establishments you mean pubs, then yes, I have. Um, and I'm pleased to say that everyone's been very sensible with putting their details down. Um has there been a, a, a percentage? Can it, is it like thirty percent, fifty percent, seventy percent capacity, or is it basically just who turns up and be sensible? 
as as yet it, it has to be assessed on a on a ground by ground basis effectively they will do a risk assessment um and, and the aim is to be as flexible as possible so if, if you have one ground where you, effectively you can walk in from two or three different entrances um as opposed to just the one then you would be allowed to have a a bigger attendance because what they're trying to do is to minimize the number of pinch points um so and, and something which else might be uh, introduced is some form of staggered entry and entrance um, to uh, sorry en- entrance and exit to to prevent too many people getting too close to too short a period of time. Hmm. It's good news though. My cousin is in goal for Stalybridge Celtic, Tom Stewart, and they get sort of six to a thousand, six hundred to a thousand. But the nature of the ground is such. There's many non-league grounds have got big open parts to them, so they should hopefully be. Uh, easily enough to accommodate. But as you say, there is that thing, because already, as soon as this was announced, you start looking at Carl Shorten's fixtures, or, or in South London, certainly, you look at Carl Shorten's fixtures, Toot the Mitchell's fixtures, and you think, well, if I'm not getting to Sellers Park any time this season, then maybe four or five of us could go along there, and then they would be a victim of their own enthusiasm, wouldn't they? Uh, p- potentially. I mean, I, I think that that will be a sort of a wait-and-see approach. Remember, there will also be some some regular fans of these clubs who perhaps they perceive themselves as being in high risk groups because of their age, because of pre-existing conditions, they might have diabetes or things of this nature, um, and therefore they they will self-exclude. Um, the other issue I think we need to be, be concerned about, I, I guess, is that of, of catering, um, you know, whether people will be allowed to queue up for pies and pints um, sort of uh, in close proximity. I can't see that being approved. So, that again might have to be assessed. I know there has been talk uh, about sort of effectively using apps and things of this nature, so that they you, you you pay online and then you go and collect your 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 beer from from a receptacle uh, where where you're not too close to other people. That's an interesting point you make about the age profile actually of of non-league clubs, especially with the further down the the table you get, because I, I imagine not many of them have got young new fans. You sort of you have this picture in your head of sort of stout middle-aged men supporting the non-league club in defiance to the local Premier League club. So that's an interesting one. But I mean, whatever happens, it's it's very encouraging, Kieran. I mean, we there are times in the dark period, sort of March, April, when we we had no idea how many clubs would come through this, whether we'd ever go back to see football again. So the fact is that we can go and see clubs like Carl Shorten and Tootney Mitch and the Stadium Bridge Celtic and, and Clapton, who we'll be talking about later, is... Is is encouraging, isn't it? Yes, yeah, yeah. I, I think as ultimately we we all support our own club, but we share a love for the game. Yeah. Um, and and you know, football. The reason why football is so great is because it's a shared experience. And and going to matches with uh, other fans, um, and just having having those giggles, um, and having those memorable moments is is something to look forward to. Yeah, two big managerial appointments this week, Kieran. Ronald Koeman at Barcelona and Serena Wiegman, who's taken over the England women's team. I imagine they'll be on similar salaries, no? Uh, not not quite. I mean, clearly they're, I being, they're, they're, I they being, are. I was being sarcastic, Kieran. Yeah, I, I, I suspected as much. I never can be too sure with you showbiz types, though. Um, it's hard when we can't see each other, isn't it? I, I like the old Zoom days. I know this, whatever this thing we're doing it on now is crystal clear in its clarity and, and that's a tautology but I preferred it when I could see you because I could read you there not that I can read you anyway you're like a poker player but it's hard <laughs> well um what, what's interesting is, is that the uh the manager of both the Dutch uh, men's football team and the Dutch females football team have effectively uh given up their jobs at the same time mm. uh so so in respect of Ronald Koeman um he he has been appointed as the manager of Barcelona uh, nominally he has to pay compensation to his employer, the KNVB. Uh, and again, another bad thing from COVID. I was supposed to be talking, uh, giving, a, giving a speech to uh, KNVB a few months ago, but that was cancelled due to uh, due to lockdown, which, which is a shame because, you know, Amsterdam is my favourite city. Yeah. Um, yes, yes. But, um, but uh, Ronald Koeman has to pay between four to five million euros in compensation to his employer, um, he is likely to receive uh, an amount equivalent to that being paid into his bank account at probably two minutes before he pays it out mm. by Barcelona. 
um, where his his salary will be a minimum of five million um, plus. It will be highly incentivized towards uh, winning trophies. That's the way that Barcelona tend to operate. So that's because uh, Kike Setien, who I think lasted all of 25 matches, uh, was sacked f- following uh, what be- could best be described as a 10-goal thriller, uh, wow. if, if you're being generous to, to Barcelona from uh, from last uh, last weekend. I, I mean, that was ast- I mean, I, I, sadly, our remit is not to talk about football, Kieran, but that, that was astonishing because koeman has got a big job on his hand and, and every now and again, Barcelona break out and hire an unknown as manager and then wonder why the likes of Lionel Messi won't take any notice of them. Um, the Serena Vegan one is very interesting for England women. If if the England man's team had hired somebody who'd been runners-up in the World Cup and winners of the Euros, we'd be very, very excited and we'd, we'd be saying pay them whatever they want. But it's it's kind of gone under the radar a little bit. I mean, what sort of salary, it's none of our business, but what sort of salary would you be looking at for, for the manager of the England's women's team, do you think? Well, I, I believe she's giving on around about uh, £400,000 a year. Uh, I mean, she doesn't take over until September 2021 uh, because uh, I think the Dutch uh, the Dutch team are in an existing competition. So, so Phil Neville will be continuing um, until the end of his contract as well. Um, there have been stories that the FA approached Jill Ellis, who is the coach of the USA, um, but they, they couldn't negotiate a, a salary with her. Uh, you know, the, the US uh, women's team are w- without doubt the most successful women's team in, in the game. Um, and, and as such, I think she's uh, rewarded accordingly. But uh, uh, Serena Wiegman, uh, I think, is a very exciting choice mm. uh, for, for the Lionesses. And, you know, I've, I've been along to see them play, play once. And you're never quite sure what to expect uh, because it is, a, it, is a, it is a different game to the men's, the men's game. Uh, in 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 the sense that it is far more technical, uh, but uh, you know I, I absolutely enjoyed myself, and uh, uh, you know I, I, I'm looking forward to being able to go to Wembley again to see the women's team play. Yeah, and you know Phil Neville is a nice chap. He's he's the the, the second nicest member of the, the Neville siblings. Tracy's lovely. Um, but it, it, was, it was always I, I thought it was always odd the, the women's football team should have a women manager simple as that I, I, it was an odd retrograde step for me I, I thought I understood the reasons but I'm I'm pleased that Serena Wiegman is in charge of England women and I, that's something again we will keep an eye on Ronald Koeman of course used to manage Southampton and this is a story that's kind of again gone under the radar but potentially I think is one of the biggest stories of the summer. As Southampton, it seems that their front of shirt sponsorship deal with the Chinese firm LD Sports is ending two years early. Is this financial, Kieran, or political, or geopolitical, if you prefer? I, I think there's an element of, of everything thrown in here. Um, when, when this company LD Sports was set up, and if you go onto their English website, uh, I, I think it's fair to say that it's Spartan. They, they don't appear to have any products or services, which no. sort of uh, brings us echoes of what's been happening with uh, Sheffield Wednesday and they're, they're, they're being sponsored by a taxi company that owns no taxis. So it, it's it's similar to that. Uh, Southampton's owners are Chinese as well. So it could have been a sort of a, a quasi commercial stroke political decision to have uh, Southampton sponsored by this company. But I think from Southampton's point of view, um, it was a three-year deal. They were, they were one year into it. Uh, it's an estimated six and a half million pounds a year, um, and uh, I think the reasons are given. It's uh, part of partly due to COVID nineteen, partly due to the deterioration of relations between uh, China and the UK that we're experiencing uh, at present. Um, and, and we've also seen in the last couple of days, Blackburn have yeah, their uh, front of shirt sponsorship with 10bet being cancelled. So I think we've now got five teams in the championship who could be starting the season with no front of shirt sponsorship, which is unprecedented. Mm-hmm. And, and I know people have focused on clubs are going to be suffering as a result of uh, of lockdown with a lack of match day money. And certainly that was the case towards the end of last season when people weren't allowed to attend. There's been a lot of focus on the broadcasting money as well. But this is a huge issue uh, because this is the third tier of income for football clubs. And I was talking to somebody that's involved in the sort of uh, in, in dealing with commercial 
sponsorship arrangements. And he was saying that uh, those clubs that were looking sort of pitching for 10 to 12 million pounds this season in the Premier League, they're going to probably get have to settle for six or seven. And clubs in the Championship who were on average getting around about 500k, um, you know, they, they ran the risk of having nobody at all. And that appears to have manifested itself. Uh, you know, clubs are desperate for cash at present. And I think they're going to have to go and price themselves accordingly. Yeah, it's interesting from a Palace fan's point of view because the first bit of business we did in the transfer window was to end the relationship with Member X, a Chinese company. I don't know who ended it, but we now have a non-Chinese sponsor. If if this is political, Kieran, rather than financial, does this not imply big problems for Southampton, who are owned, as you say, majority owned by a Chinese company, for Wolves, who are owned by a Chinese company? I mean, could the Chinese government be putting pressure on the on these companies to not own Premier League clubs if if they so desire? Because there's one thing we do know is that if the Chinese government puts pressure on, then Chinese companies tend to listen. Um, it, it, it is uh, it is a potential issue. I mean, the, the the Chinese government has no direct involvement with the likes of Fosun. Um, or, or Southampton's owners, but indirectly, um, you know, clearly there are there are lines of communication. So um, you know we, we have to hope that uh, the the relations between the UK and China improve. Mm. Um, and it's uh, you know it, it is it is good to get people round the table and discuss their differences rather than have uh, you know hostilities. We well, yeah, well, our prime minister confess, well, professes himself to be a huge fan of China, but if 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 the problem with China continues, and as it seems, gambling companies probably won't be able to sponsor shirts in two or three years' time, that's two massive areas that Premier League Championship clubs are losing out on, isn't it? Yes, it is. Um, and um, it, it's, it's similar in some ways to what happened with cricket and Formula One mm. um, when, uh, uh, when tobacco sponsorship ended. And initially, for a year or two, um, that there was a significant reduction in the level of income coming in from the third tier, uh, for want of a better phrase for it. Um, and then the, the sports began to find, well, actually, we are now deemed to be more acceptable, more family friendly, because we're not associated with uh, with with uh, with tobacco. If, if football manages to uh, remove itself from the tentacles of the gambling industry, which which I'm, I'm not convinced is going to happen because the EFL seem to be cheerleaders for the gambling industry with their relationship with uh, with Skybet, which you know is, has has some merits, of course, uh, but um, it, it's uh, it, it could actually be you know in five to ten years' time that the the, the sports overall would be better off financially. Hmm. Now we've been concentrating, Kieran, on smaller clubs across Europe uh, struggling with COVID, but two giant clubs are in problem. Borussia Dortmund reported losses of 44 million, pa- uh, 44 million euros, I beg your pardon, in 2019-20, uh, which they say is mainly due to COVID. And Valencia are struggling to pay players' wages. Yeah, I mean, Dortmund uh, are a club which, which, as you know, it's got, it's got a massive ground. It's uh, got a huge fan base. Um, and, and therefore, because they don't have the same uh, very cosy sponsor relationships such as the likes of, of Bayern Munich, um, you know, they are slightly uh, more at risk when, when something such as COVID comes along. So, so their match day income have, fall, have fallen by almost a third, um, and that had an impact straight on through their bottom line. So, in 2019, they've made a profit of 17 million euros. That that has turned into a loss of forty four million, but they've still gone out. Uh, you know, they bought Haaland in January. They've just bought Jude Bellingham. Um, I think Manchester United fans, however, might be looking at this information and saying, "Well, well hold on, if Dortmund are uh, in a position where they're struggling to uh, to make ends meet, you know, could this mean that a particular player now becomes more likely to be sold uh, over the over the forthcoming window?" Mm, that's interesting. And what about Valencia? Well, Valencia, um, a, a bit like the way that uh, producer Guy deals with us, um, they are now paying people in IOUs, in what's <laughs> referred to as promissory notes. Oh, um, and uh, the concerning thing, yeah, the, the concerning thing is that they've got an expiry date of September 2021. 
Oh, right. So okay. you know, they, they might have to wait 13 months before picking up their July pay packet. Now, the, 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 the club have said, oh, that was a typing error, and it should have, should have said September 2020. But yeah, that's a pretty big uh, error to make. Um, Valencia were making the biggest losses in, uh, in, in La Liga. So that they were a, a club which I was a little bit concerned about. Uh, and also Valencia's owner, who is Peter Lim, uh, he owns 40% of Salford City, uh, along with uh, the, the second and the third uh, m- m- nicest uh, uh, Neville siblings from, from what you appear to be describing. Um, and, of course, the rest of that, that gang from, from the old uh, class of 92. So whether this is implications for Salford City as well, we don't know. Um, at the end of uh, the La Liga season, Valencia did have a fire sale of players. Uh, Pereo and uh, Coquilla, uh, they went both to uh, Villarreal. And, and uh, I think it's it Ferran Torres who's joined Manchester City. Mm. But looking at the comments which he's made since joining City, uh, you get the impression he, he didn't particularly want to go. And it was more of a case of being pushed out rather than uh, requesting a transfer himself. So, uh, it, it is one which we have to monitor. Uh, you know, clearly, for a, a club with the, the history and the heritage of Valencia, it would be uh, it would be a tragedy if things deteriorated any further. There, I, I imagine Mr. Lim's financial commitment to Salford is a lot less than it is to Valencia. But would this this surely would have been done in consultation with the players, wouldn't it? You can't suddenly just turn around and say to the players. You're not getting paid this month, but here's a here's a little IOU. Don't worry about it. Back of an envelope, etc. Like Guy does. Um, well, um, I, I think the players were about as surprised as we were really? uh, in in respect of that particular uh, that particular event, which is why it's gone down uh, very badly. Um, and I think the players are consulting their union and they're, and they're trying to determine exactly where they are. Uh, the club has said, oh, they will be now paid at the end of August. That's presumably because uh, money will start flowing in from the 2020-21 TV deal with La Liga. And, and that money, what, what, what happens is the, the TV companies pay the money to La Liga as a central body who then distributes it um, to the individual clubs. Um, but if, if Valencia, who, who did say made substantial losses last season, uh, it could be that their finances are a little bit worse than I feared. Hmm. Um, we have a, a fascinating interview to come with the treasurer of Clapton Community Football Club. Um, on the face of it, if you saw that written down, that sentence, you'd think that wouldn't make a lot of sense. But trust me, it is a really, really good interview. But we have one more news story, Kieran. And I didn't think I'd be able to say this. But the Wigan situation is looking even more suspicious because there are reports that the owner, Al Young, consulted accountants about putting the club into administration the day before he even told the EFL that he'd taken over the club. Now, my first question is, should the accountants, if it's true, not share that information? Uh, No, they're they're under no obligation to share information with a third party. And as it was an informal inquiry... Um, that, that they again would have no obligation to report it. Uh, it it's not fraud, um, but it, it does call into question. Uh, you know, has had the EFL done enough due diligence in investigating Al Young as an appropriate owner of the club? Um, and and in, in addition to this, um, the uh, sort of leading into I think our, our next story, um, the independent disciplinary committee have published three three reports uh, this week, one of which related to Wigan. Um, and it uh, said that it was, uh, as far as they can wake out, it was a commercial decision made by Mr. Al Young. Um, he, and he, he, he just made a promise and broke that promise. It's, it's the equivalent of you or I saying to somebody, I love you or I'll phone you tomorrow. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> my heart just, can we just pause it now on my heart? calm down a little bit but as soon as you start saying the equivalent i panic um if if this is true and this is a story from the guardian and from what we can ascertain the guardian are are 100 percent convinced this is true this is incredibly well a infuriating for wigan fans but embarrassing for the efl i mean if if this chap was actually discussing the idea of putting the club into administration before he'd even taken over that's 
I mean, that's astonishing, isn't it? I mean, that, we've talked about a lot of bad behaviour on this pod, but that's up there with the worst, isn't it? It is. And it's, yeah, we've said this on more than one occasion. It just makes no sense. You know, why, why buy a business for £40 million? Um, by the looks of things, he, he did actually put in around about a further million himself. And he had promised to pay the wages uh, at the end of last month. Um, and the, the, the directors of Wigan, but based locally, were thought things were just going to go through. And all of a sudden, I've changed my mind. Um, I'm not going to pay the wages and I'm putting the club into administration. He he effectively got rid of the English directors and, and appointed himself as chairman uh, in, in terms of running the club on a day to day basis. Um, and that's as far as it's gone. It's it, uh, it, it does call into question the, the self-regulation model that we presently have uh, in English football. Hmm. Well, as you say, the EFL have released its commission rulings into Wigan, Sheffield Wednesday and Birmingham City. And you'll be talking, hopefully, in the next couple of days to Tom Horton QC from Football Law about the detail of those rulings. And if you listening to this have a question you'd like to throw into that chat, email us at questions at priceoffootball.com and we'll bring you that interview on Monday. But first, this interview, which is one of the most interesting I think we've done. We, we literally finished it a minute before we started recording this. Uh, and we hear, Kieran, we hear, Kieran, that's you and I, and, and Guy to an extent, but he's, I've noticed he's wandered off the screen. His thing, he's not even listening anymore. But you and I, Kieran, we pride ourselves on two things on this pod, childish innuendo, <laughs> which we do very well, and a, a desire to look at the finances of football at every level. And quite often that happens because a proud fan or a co-owner will get in touch with us to say, have you heard what's happening at our club? And that's exactly how we come to be talking to Kevin Blow, who is the treasurer of Clapton Community FC. And here's what Kevin had to say. Hi, I'm Steve Lamack, and every week I'm joined by Music Allies Head of Insights, Stuart Dredge, on The Price of Music, the weekly podcast all about the money behind the music industry. In each episode, we discuss the very latest goings-on in the music business and dig into the finances behind the big stories. So whether you're a music lover who just wants to know more about what really goes on in the industry, or you're an aspiring musician, manager or label owner who wants some inside knowledge on how Spotify's financial model really works, or what the future holds for independent live music venues, this is a show for you. Subscribe to The Price of Music in your podcast app now. See you soon. Kevin, it's lovely to meet you. John Walker, who is a supporter and therefore co-owner of the club, got in touch with us. And we were so intrigued that we had to talk to you because I think it's fair to say that the ethos of your club is very much shared by Kieran and I on this pod. Now, Clapton FC was one of many, many thriving amateur clubs in North East London. But tell us how and why you recently became Clapton Community FC. Well, basically, there was a fans group that were... Um, that started to get involved around 2013 uh, in the in Clapton Football Club, and um, that grew from when I first started going from about 30 people to by the time the back end of 2006, the 15-16 season, we had a thousand people at a game. Wow! And all of that was just word of mouth. It was all to do with the fact that the, the group, um, the Clapton Ultras, were. Um, yeah, it, we're presenting a, a, a version of, of football that, that was unlike the things that people experience elsewhere. Mm-hmm. So the fact that, you, that it was actually fun, that you could have a drink, that you can meet up with people on a regular basis and that you weren't paying an exorbitant amount of money to go. Um, one of the difficulties that we, having then got really enthusiastic about the club, uh, which is an unincorporated association, was we then said, well, how do we join? And we were told that the membership had been closed for re- restructuring. Right. Uh, and four years later, it was still closed for restructuring. So, um, And there was never any transparency. There was never any way of being able to get involved. And so originally, we spoke to Supporters Direct, as was, and said, look, what can we do about this? And they said to us, well, you could spend thousands of pounds on legal action if you wanted to. But you say the real heart and soul of the club you've got all the fans you've got all the life members uh you've got people who are you know got a huge amounts of goodwill why don't you just go ahead and set up a, a, 
a, a, a Clemson football club yourself. Mm. That's what we did. Um, and we finally got that off the ground in, uh, I think it was April 2018, mm. uh, with pretty much no money and really no clue about whether it was going to work or not. And you, you met resistance from the owner of Clapton FC, or I think Kieran would describe as a wrong Yeah, I mean, pretty much um, every time we tried to, 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 to engage with, with the club as, as, as supporters, we were pushed back. And then in April 2017, um, he decided to put the ground into liquidation. Mm. Um, and, I mean, this is the oldest senior uh, football ground in London. It's been there since 18, uh, 1888. And with, a, with a brilliant name as well. With a fantastic name, the Old Spotted Dog Ground. So we, um, and that was the final straw, I think. We, we, we then realised that our money was basically going towards the costs of winding up the ground. And so we organised a boycott. And the, the attendance went from 1,000 down to about 15 or 20 overnight. And it was a rock solid boycott, but been able to sustain that over. We kept it going for nine months, but to keep it going any longer than that, when actually we wanted to go and watch football, was was always going to be hard work. And that was also a factor in setting, in deciding to go down the route of setting up the club. Hmm. The club. So, so it, is it like Berry? Is it, it does Clapton FC still actually technically exist as well? It does. Yeah, it still plays in the Essex Senior League. Um, and at the moment, it's it's got a it's got a ground, um, which I'm, I'm not sure how long they'll be, be able to keep. So they they seem to be, didn't last very long at the previous ground that they uh, they were at, because obviously um, they're no longer playing at the old spotted dog, because the grounds because well, they didn't pay their rent, and so it was repossessed by the owner uh, in August of last year. So that's where we are. I mean, there there, there is still a a, a a a Clapton, which we often refer to as a zombie Clapton, which still exists. Um, but we, to be honest, we're not really fussed about that now. The whole thing has taken on a life of its own. So we built we built a club from nothing up to one which has now got over fourteen hundred members, um, with people members all over the world, and which has now got three teams, uh, about to have four teams. So, you know, it's and we've done that in two years. We didn't, have, we didn't even have a manager until June of 2018. Um, and when Jeff, who was a former um, captain of Clapton FC, came on board as the manager. Yeah. Are you a completely amateur club, Kevin, or, or are you? Are the players paid? What, 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 what is the position in terms of the finances? Because, you know, clearly like all uh clubs at at the lower tiers it must be an incredible challenge for you presently um uh, as a result of covid we're not we don't play pay players i mean the the club has always been an amateur side right back to the beginning of its history um and this is the you know we we embrace the the the, the history going all the way back to um the 1880s uh when we talk about where we sit within that but no, at the level we're at, we're still, don't forget we're we're eleven tiers below the Premier League. So no, we don't play players, and I can't see us playing that paying players anytime soon. I want, I want to come on to that in more detail in a moment, Kevin. Because um, first of all, was the Old Spotted Dog a pub? Because I've been researching a lot of London football history recently, and I can't find the reason why it's called. The, the yeah, I mean, yeah, it was a pub. Um, there was a, a it's it's next door. It's actually the oldest building in in the borough of Newham. It was um, reputedly a uh, a hunting lodge that was owned by Henry VIII, and, and it's, the reason why the building's still there is because it's Grade Two listed. Right. But it closed in two thousand and four, and has been empty for all this time. In fact, it's just been bought, and it's being finally redeveloped into with quite a lot of local support into uh, into a hotel. Hmm. There's a lot of Henry VIII hunting lodges around. There's two in Norbury for a start off, Kevin. Um, but you, for the first time now in your history, the club owns the ground, doesn't it? So how much did that cost? How did you raise the money and when will you move back in? Well, um, I mean, I should explain how we how this came about. So last year, last year we suddenly heard 
out of the blue that the, the ground had been repossessed um, and it was for non-payment of rent. And so we thought, well, we know we're in a financial position to be able to make a good offer. So we put together a proposal uh, that was ex- accepted over to others. And then we started negotiations initially on a on a lease um, and they dragged on. And then suddenly out of the blue in February of this year, uh, the the owners, which is Heineken, hence the brewery connection, yeah. um, just said, do you want to buy it? And we said, <laughs> yeah. yeah, how much? And they said, 96 grand. And we said, yes, please. Um, so we actually probably had the money, but we would have just bankrupt the club. Yeah. Um, and so what we wanted to do is spread that over, over a, a period of time. So we went out and we got approval from our membership. Then we went out to try and get a commercial loan to cover that amount of money. And really struggled initially because it was quite difficult to explain to people what it is we were trying to do. Yeah, cool. and then through again through supporters direct um, people, we uh, actually f- through I think it might have been through Andy Walsh actually from the uh, Football Supporters Association. We um, we put in contact with uh, cooperative and community finance who only fund social enterprises uh, and who were completely brilliant, who completely understood what it is we were trying to do, came and saw us, came and looked to the ground and um, and then offered us the uh, offered us the money. Brilliant. And um, then ultimately what happened then is we just finalised the negotiations and closed the sale on the 24th of July. That's That strikes me as quite quick. Kieran, d- does that all make sound financial sense to you for a club that size to go to the co-op? Yes, yes. I mean, it, it is good that there are community-based lenders uh, still around. Um, and I'm sure, yeah, I I I do uh, work for a uh, an old uh, shipyard uh, rugby club. It's still back in Manchester, and, and we had a fairly similar organisation there. So yes, it, it can be done because the members buy into the idea, and therefore uh, you do get that support. And, and I presume, Kevin, that sort of the repayment terms are over uh, a reasonably long period of time. Would that be fair? Well, we've done it. We've done the repayment over 10 years. And actually, because we, we entered into the discussions with them from a position that a lot of clubs aren't in, which is a really healthy bank balance. Um, and that's because it's not just because we've had attendance, good attendances at games. Um, it's because of the absolute phenomenal um, sales of our of our away shirt, frankly. Yeah. Um, over the last two years. And, and so again, we'll, again, we'll come on to that, Kevin. So. Okay, well, I mean, that when we were sitting down and having a conversation with them, we were in a position to be able to say, we can provide whatever you want. We've got proper accounts. We've got um, uh, bank healthy bank balances. We've got reserves. We've got all the stuff that you want to see in order to be able to make a, make this loan. And that's what made it easy, despite obviously then almost immediately the lockdown happening. They were they understood that we were in a position to be able to ride out that particular storm. Okay. Kevin, I'm I'm happy to ask you personal financial questions about the club because you have a policy of complete financial transparency, don't you? What was behind that decision? Well, partly it's about making sure that members know exactly what's going on because a good way of being able to show how a club operates is to show what it buy, what it what its income and expenditure is. Um, but also and also because we have members who are not just immediately local to the club. There are people in in United States, in Spain, we've got members in Australia and Japan and South Korea. And so, you know, if you want to find out this information, coming to an AGM once a year and picking up the counts is not the way that you're going to find it out. The other thing is it makes, because we have a structure which is um, which is horizontal, so we have lots of committees who have, have a, a, a great deal of um, latitude to go away and do their own things without necessarily having to constantly check back and make sure that they get permission for things it, it means that they're in a better position to um to to know where they are to know where they are financially because you know i'm treasurer i can't possibly do i could do this as a full-time job if i was um, if i was trying to manage that number of of, of different interactions with different parts of the club but the final thing is is i guess is a little bit emotional really you know it's it was absolutely a reaction to the to the abject lack of transparency that we encountered when we were trying to deal with the owner of um, of, of Clapton FC, um, and I think there was a lot of people who thought, well, we're not going to be like that. 
we are absolutely going to embrace the idea that you need to be transparent um, because by doing so, actually, it, 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 it makes sure that if problems start to appear in the future, there's not one person or one or two people who notice that. There's an awful lot of people who start asking questions about whether we you can afford to do X or Y. So that's kind of the thinking behind it. Kieran, knowing your views on financial transparency, I can hear you purring from here, basically. Oh, I'm. Uh, this this is this is this is heaven as far as I'm concerned. Uh, I I've been on a soapbox for a number of years about. Uh, we're talking about professional football clubs in in the EFL, um, of whom around about half in in League One and League Two don't even produce a, a profit and loss account. And, and you know, we, we don't go to football to, to read those things. But there's normally a few people within the fan base who, who do have a curious mind. And, and you know, as, as Kevin said, it, it's about being transparent. It's about being honest with uh, with, with the members. Um, and by, by taking the approach that, uh, that Clapton Community Football Club have taken, that they've said, we've, we've got nothing to hide. And if, if, you, if you do take such a standpoint... Um, I, I think that builds up goodwill, um, and that that comes through in a variety of ways, um, you know, especially when times do get a bit tough, as, as we're all experiencing at present. And just to add to that, um, it also is a way of of, of neutralising any sense of suspicion about the motivations of the things that you do. So when we um, when we agreed to. Um, to, to discuss with the, the former owners of the Old Spotted Dog about this sale, we, we decided, because it was commercially sensitive, that we weren't going to make a public announcement of that. So for a lot of people, not our members, but certainly other people, it, it pretty much came out in the blue. It's like, how, how the hell did that happen? And so we decided to publish a transparency statement on the sale, which includes the copy of the agreement, the copies of the correspondence, um the schedule of repayments i mean i admit that there's not going to be a lot of people that look at that but what it did is absolutely cut dead any suggestion that there was anything underhand about that approach mm. kevin as you said to kieran you you have no paid staff or players um you're 100 run by fans and i like the fact that on your website you actually seem quite cross that you have to have any sort of official position at all like treasurer or, or honorary chairman or whatever is is running a club by the fans always amicable well, so far it's been um, partly because we, I mean, lots of people involved in the club come from other forms of organising. I mean, I was involved for many years in um, in the local community centre in Forest Gate for giving support to local groups. Um, but there were lots of people involved in different kinds of campaigning activities, people involved in trade unions. And I think what we did was we, we there's an understanding of the way that you organise, which means that you don't not everybody has to be involved in the decisions so i don't know what how how decisions are reached for our match day committee or the men's first team committee or whatever it might be because they're allowed to just get on with that you know and that's that idea that you trust people to be able to do that and everything doesn't have to go through the board um is i think the way that we've managed to avoid the kind of conflicts that maybe other people have um and we've really emphasised the idea that there isn't a fo- the final decision maker is the membership. It's not the board. The board's main responsibility is to make sure that our internal democracy works and make sure that membership engagement happens, that there are members meetings and stuff like that. But it's not there to, to kind of sign off on every single um, thing that happens. And the finance committee, which I chair, isn't there to approve finances. It's there to make sure that, that the, the individual committees are on top of where they are and are not running away with their with their own individual budgets but that's all it's quite hard actually because people um still people are locked into the idea of hierarchy and trying to to get a sense of uh, people uh, people to understand that there isn't somebody that you have to go and check this with you can actually make these decisions yourself it's going to take time for people to overcome well it's it's really encouraging to hear that Kevin, because I'm, I'm, this sounds trivial, but most people listening to this will have played for a Sunday league team where you can't get 14 people to agree on anything. So the fact that you've got upwards of 2,000 people organising and running a proper football club with that model is brilliant. And, and talking of your fans, we're going to come on to your brilliant Awake It in a moment, but John Walker, who brought this story to our attention, uh, told us, and this is a quote, you have a strong 
anti-fascist fan base, uh, which Kieran and I, of course, absolutely approve of. Was that was that deliberate, or and if so, why was that? Well, um, I think the start the starting point was that the was the Clapton Ultras, which very much modelled itself on um, the kind of anti-fascist ultra tradition of Italian football, yeah. and then we had a we had a real strong presence because the thing about London is that there are people who come from all over the world. So we had a real strong presence of Italians who would come to the game and Polish lads who would organize their own sort of support group within part of the stand and a lot of Spaniards that would turn up, you know, so, um, and they all brought that kind of European tradition of along with it, but also just because of where we are, this is the, the borough is 70% of the population is non-white. It's got a long, long history, much of which I was involved in myself, of resistance to both racism and fascism. And um, it's a way of being able to be to also to, to make a clear stand in relation to, I think, what a lot of people's opinions of what football fans are, which is right wing, boorish, homophobic and, and, and sexist. Yeah, it's a shame. The ultra thing is it's still for some English fans has negative connotations because wrongly it's it's nearly always associated with with the far right whereas the 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 tradition of ultras especially in italy was from a communist background wasn't it absolutely i mean i you know everybody thinks about lazio but they don't think about um you know many of the other not just in italy actually but clubs all over europe who um who you know had a really strong uh either left-wing or or specifically anti-fascist tradition um and which I think, you know, is is for those people who love football but just don't like the kind of stereotype of what football fans are, was an obvious thing for us to embrace. Now, I, I interrupted you earlier on, uh, Kevin, when you started to talk about your away kit, but only because I wanted to give it proper space to talk about it because I, I've got – everybody who listens to this knows about my kit fetish. I love football kits. I love badges. I love the way they reflect working-class history. Um but your awake is is different level. Tell us about that. Yeah. So basically, what happened was um, uh, we we had a had a home kit, which is the red and white stripes. Well, we didn't have an away kit, so we did. We asked members to come up with designs, and we did a kind of um, uh, a kind of tournament thing. You know, quarter final, semi final, final. That was kind of running parallel to what was going on in the summer of 2018. And we came up, to be honest, the design that, that was that was done, which is a tribute to people who uh, from from Britain and Ireland who had gone out to fight in Spain in the Spanish Civil War in the 30s, was the runaway winner. I mean, it's a great design anyway. And, and, and Tom Bleasdale, who is one of our board who designed that, gets full credit for coming up with it. Um, and so we... I mean, I think we envisaged that we would sell a few to members. So at the end of July 2018, um, I remember signing the uh, right, doing the bank transfer, 1,500 quid to buy the first 30 home and away shirts, uh, which at that time was about a third of our income, a third of our, our money. We organised a launch party at the beginning of August 2018 and sold them all. And then for reasons that, Lots of different for for a, a combination of reasons. Partly because the design, um, w- when the shirts were first used for an, by the team, was shared by uh, somebody who has your as much of a passion for shirts as you do, who's in Spain. And um, I think partly because on the twenty fourth of August in two thousand eighteen, the Spanish government suddenly announced that they were um, approved the exhumation of um, the fascist former dictator um, Franco. Uh, which was a really significant moment of historical reflection in Spain. The combination of those two things just meant that it was sales, advanced sales for, for the next batch went crazy. So at the end of, of August 2018, we'd gone from about four grand in the bank to £124,000 in the bank. Wow. Um, and a really significant number of those uh, sales were f- were from Spain, and people were, were getting in contact with, with us and saying, I mean, particularly people who were from a sort of Republican sympathising tradition from Spain, saying, "How is it that a tiny little club in the East End of London is willing and able to celebrate part of the history of our country when we can't even talk about it?" And I think that's that's part of the reason why it spiralled. So 
we were in this weird position of suddenly having to put the price up because we had to register for VAT. Um, and everything after that has been a series of, of massive learning curves for all of us, really. Yeah, I, I mean, just as a kit, it's brilliant. But as history, I mean, it's complete with the three-pointed star of the International Brigade as well, which is brilliant. And and also, again, on your website, which I would recommend anybody who's interested in community football to go to your website, because there's a piece on there saying that, you know, we're owned by fans, so we won't charge you £80 for a replica shirt made by workers who receive slave wages, which is brilliant. But is there any part of you as treasurer that says, look, can we get this ethically made and charge 80 quid? Because it's a really good source of income, isn't it? Uh, absolutely not, no, because <laughs> the original intention would, would, was that our members would be able to afford them. Yeah. And um, so we didn't. it's not like we set out with some sort of marketing plan to try and sell 16,500 away shirts. Um, it's just that if people love them, Okay, we of the tw- out of the twenty five quid, we probably make about seven quid on each shirt, which is a pretty low margin. But we have sold an awful lot of them. You know, it, it, it is it's pretty much enabled us to buy the ground that we're now in. It's enabled us to be able to make sure the club's in a really strong financial position despite everything else that's going on. Um, and crucially, it's man- it's meant that our membership went from about three hundred to, as I said earlier. Just over fourteen hundred with people with with now Clapton CFC fan groups in North America. Um, we've got one. And there's a Catalonian fan group. This is the stuff that for us was what football is all about, you know. So, so no, um, it, it's great that uh, that that people want to buy them. And of course, what it, what it has also done is is it's meant that people have bought our other merchandise too. Mm. It's it's encouraging as well for people of of well our our shared beliefs I include Kieran in this that clubs like San Pauli, uh, Whitehawk, uh, Dulwich Hamlet to an extent are openly espousing left wing liberal policies and yet still being commercially successful because five six years ago you'd have said that the, the two things were incompatible, wouldn't you? Yeah, I mean I think um, it, it's it's there's a moment when. A significant number of, of football fans had had enough of just being treated really badly by the Premier League. So most of the people that come, that come to our games are Clapton FC and something else fans. Yeah. So Leighton Orient, West Ham, mainly Spurs. Um, but they come to Clapton games because it's actually just more fun. Uh, and that's that's the thing I think that 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 is so great about non-league football is that it's actually a really good laugh. I mean, I think the quality of the football is actually often very good, but it is just, uh, it's enormous fun. And I think that as long as it is that, um, and you can get enough people coming through the turnstiles and you can get enough people involved in the clubs, then you're going to be able to survive. And and also, of course, because London is so big that every area is like, you know, you, you, like you say, West Ham and Tottenham fans are going to your place. And then we've got Sutton, Carshall and Tootin and Mitcham, where you're getting Palace, Chelsea fans going down to support them. And normally, once you've been there once, you go back because, like you say, it is fun and it kind of reminds you of what football like, was like when you were a kid as well. Um now I'll, we need to let you go because we've got we've got to fit this interview into the pod, and it's we're not going to edit any of this out. I promise you. This this is more of a statement than a question, Kevin. But your club has a tradition of diversity. Football history is very difficult to pin down. But the first black player in England was goalkeeper Arthur Wharton, who joined Rotherham in eighteen eighty nine. But the first black outfield player was Walter Toll, who signed for Northampton by Herbert Chapman in nineteen eleven and played one hundred and ten games before. He joined up in the First World War, became the first black officer to lead white soldiers into battle and was killed in March 1918. But he started his career at your club. That must be a source of great pride. Oh, but it absolutely is. And, and you know, as well as all that amazing history, he's also a player that was treated really badly uh, and suffered incredible racism from other, other fans. And I think the fact that he endured and went on to, to, to you know, to do some amazing things and ultimately... Um, you know, dying on the fields of 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 France isn't necessarily one of them, but I think the the fact that he is remembered, he's you know, his 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 name is now mentioned in schools. Yeah. I mean, we 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 see it as being such an important part of our club that we've got a massive trade union style club banner. It's actually made by somebody who makes them for the unions, which is a celebration of what we're told. We've not actually had, because of the lockdown, we've not actually had an opportunity to take it out anywhere. But 
I figure the first game at the old spotted dog when we can go back there, I think you might be looking at a Corteo down Upton Lane with a big water towel banner. Um, that would be quite a thing to see, I think. But it, it, it just shows, and again, this is another feature of our, our pod and my passion for football. It just shows you, Kevin, why every club is important, not just in football history, but in social and working class history as well. Because like, yeah, you, you can support Man United, you can support the first English team to win the European Cup, or you can support Rochdale, who were the first English team to have a black manager. And all these things should be remembered in a way that, that yeah, Walter Toll should be as well known as George Best. Arthur Walton should be as well known as, as David. You know, these people need to be remembered and, and celebrated because the only way you're going to get black people feeling happy to come to football grounds again is by celebrating the, the black people that have been in football grounds in years gone by and their, their names are sadly slipping away from memory. Yeah, I mean, I think that's true, but I think it's also a reflection that that so much of the approach to sport is to see football as only being the Premier League, yeah, or only being the you know, the Championship, and not really understanding that more people are watching football or, or certainly playing football at the lower levels. I mean, I think it's not just about the fact that Walter Tull is an important part of our history; it's also about the fact that we are we still see ourselves as being a club that's absolutely fundamentally opposed. To, to racism and to, to standing up to, to racism. I mean, that's the way that we're going to change and draw people in from the area um, is to is to be a club that's, that, that, that makes that a, a stand that we want to take. Um, now, our, our aim is to make sure that we that actually we get loads more people from from around Forest Gate and Plasto and Upton Park and so on to, to actually start to come down to the games on a regular basis. Before I ask my final question, Kevin, Kieran, I just want to ask you, how far up the league can you go before a fan-owned model becomes unsustainable? Um, I, I, if, if I'm honest, I, I think you can get as far as about, about as League One. Uh, we've seen what's happened with Portsmouth and Wickham Wanderers. Wickham Wanderers was fan-owned, community-owned. Um, and they they, they end, ended up having to come to an agreement with with uh, with a private individual. Similarly, with Portsmouth, and and that's partly due to the fact that uh, a break even model uh, simply doesn't work in in the modern football era. Um, but you, you could look elsewhere. Uh, you know, Motherwell have been very successful in Scotland, um, and then you could argue that clubs such as Barcelona themselves. Are, you know, they are member owned, even even though it's quite a complicated scenario surrounding that. So you know, I, I honestly feel that there is opportunities. I, mean, I, I used to be a co-owner at FC United of Manchester when they broke away, mainly because one of my colleagues at uh, Manchester Metropolitan University was involved in creating the constitution for, for FC United. Um, and, and that club has been you know, relatively successful. We, we've seen uh, AFC Berry form. We, we've seen other Phoenix clubs which have been fan orientated. So, you know, I, I think they, I think uh, Clapton, they, they are a community club, and, and the values which which they stand for, which yeah, which I completely echo, um, that doesn't mean that they should not be successful on the pitch as well. Um, and uh, you know, I was actually going to ask Kevin, you know, have you been approached by fans of other clubs who want to sort of take your model as a template um, and develop it from there? Um, not yet, no, but we we very much up for, um, for, for sharing that information. I mean, to be honest, they don't really need to go and look because we chuck so much of our stuff straight up on our website for everybody to make available anyway that you could pretty much use – um, the documents on our transparency page as a template for, for going ahead and setting up a club yourself. Um, I mean, I do agree that I think there is a limit probably to to how high we could go. I mean, as an amateur club, as, as a club that you know, whose history was uh, was absolutely tied up with amateurism, that won that won the FA Amateur Cup in the early part of the 20th century five times. Um, I think most of us who, who've given any thought to this, and we've barely had any time to think about anything over the last couple of years, um, thinking maybe if we can get to into the Isthmian League, that would be a success. But we're away from that, quite a way to go yet, to be honest. So I'm not going to really think too much further than that. The question of um, of beyond that is the question about playing, uh, paying for players. And I think that's always the moment when things start to change. Yeah, that's certainly what happened with, with FC United. Uh, you know, and, and I, you know, I hope, hope from your point of view that whatever decisions that the members make is, is one which they can all come to some form of agreement with. 
Yeah, I mean, we'll have to see. I mean, I, 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 we just need to we need to climb out of the Middlesex County Premier League first. So, one thing at a time, eh? Also, <clears throat> Kevin, as well, I suppose it strikes me that you wouldn't want to get high enough up the league that it would jeopardise your model as a fan-owned and run club. And and I know a lot of AC, AFC Wimbledon fans who basically said that for them the fun stopped once they got into league football and they had to start taking it seriously again. Yeah, I mean, the, the, the moment when you start having to have stewards and, and the cops there and, and not allowed to have a beer outside because of the stadia rules, that, that is the moment where it, it stops, where there's a danger that it stops being the key element that why we started this in the first time, first place, because it was a really good laugh. Um, and I think we're all conscious of that. That at the moment when we when we get to that point, I honestly don't know what we what our position would be, but I think most people would say that we would be happy to remain a non-league club mm. for the foreseeable future. Because although we've got a commitment to play at the highest level we can, um, it's not at the expense of making sure that members uh, genuinely uh, can be involved in the club and are drawn from the local community. Kevin, thank you very much for talking to us. Uh, you have our best wishes, and I'm sure this is a story we'll be talking about more in the future, and hopefully we'll be back on the phone uh, to chat to you again. All the best, mate. Thanks very much. Thank you. Kieran, I mean, he just ticks so many of our boxes, but the, the one thing I really took out of that is when were you going to tell me that you were involved in a rugby club? Um, probably never. Uh, I, I probably shouldn't have mentioned it actually, but mm. I, I only do the accounts for them. Mm. Um, yeah, I'm, uh, I'm, I'm a generous soul. I, I play, I played cricket there and we were combined. Uh, we were the Vickers shipyard, uh, works team. So, you know, that, that ticks boxes for me. Um, and, and they bequeathed us the ground and, uh, you know, rather than pay an external accountant, they asked me as a member of the cricket team, would I would I produce the accounts for the rugby club as well? Yeah, you, you say that. I only did the accounts. Like I only drove the getaway car. I didn't bludgeon the driver. <laughs> um, and also, please tell me that Vickers is spelt V-I-C-K-E-R-S. It's not Vickers Shipyard. It's not a euphemism, is it? No, 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 Vickers Shipyard. It's, it's famous on the Manchester Ship Canal. It yeah, was, uh... I, I've heard of the Vickers Shipyard, but when you say Vickers Shipyard, it worries me that what you mean is... <laughs> like I just had a glimpse of the Vickers ship. Never mind. That's my fault. I shouldn't have mentioned it. But I mean, Kieran, what an interesting, interesting interview that was. I mean, it's a story that, as I say, was brought to our attention by a fan. And what you've got, and almost in a sort of AFC Wimbledon Wimbledon situation, is the, the the new club, the Phoenix Club, taking over the heritage and history of the original club. But I mean, I, I, like I say, when, when he was talking about the financial transparency, I mean, these are things that you've been arguing for for many a long year. And, and it's just very interesting to hear the, the the measured passion and the way he talked about the fans actually running the club. Because we talk about fans' ownership, but here the fans are running the club. It's, it's, it's brilliant and inspiring to hear, isn't it? That's right. And, and also, I think the from, from the way that Kevin was talking, um, if they are successful, I suspect they'd rather stay as an amateur club yeah. and uh, just serve the local community and, and all of the positive things that that brings in terms of, as he said, we go along to football and we have a laugh. And, and I've got to be honest, we are both fans of Premier League football clubs. And we spend most of our time in fear of being relegated. And I can't remember the last time I saw 10 matches on the trot, which I actually enjoyed. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> it's like when Ed, Ed said to me last season that he's not having much fun. It's like, who gave you the idea it was fun? It's, 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 tr it's true, though. And it's like most football fans, Premier League fans, Championship fans, will tell you that they've got a a non-league club, a local club that they go to. And it, it is fun just for the fact that away fans mix much more easily. It's easier to get a pint. You can sit and watch the game, you know, and the TV's go. It's, it is much more fun. And it's brilliant to hear from, from Kevin and Clapton that that is enough for some people, that they're at the, their ambition is not to take the club into League One or the Championship. Their, their ambition is to keep the club thriving as a local club for the community and to keep doing good things in the, in the community. And it's a, it's a salutary lesson that however big or small the club you support is, it's the most important club in, in the world 
for you. And that's why we continue to talk about Clapton FC and Barcelona on the same pod. Uh, Monday is our questions pod. Again, as I'll repeat the uh, email address I gave you earlier, which is questions at priceoffootball.com. You, you, Kieran, you have a lovely weekend playing rugby and cricket and clay pigeon shooting and badminton and volleyball and whatever else you haven't told me about in your deeply, deeply bourgeois. You've gone a long way from the elephant and castle, haven't you? You never take the elephant and castle out the boy. Yeah, that should be the uh, the name of your autobiography: from the elephant and castle to the vicar's shipyard. <laughs> Have you got a message for our listeners before we go? Uh, well, I just like to say thanks for all the feedback, uh, folks. It, it is appreciated. We do take notice, um, and thank you for for hitting that purple icon on the uh, Apple Podcast app uh, and giving us reviews. We, we don't care what you say. You can say it's uh, eyebrow raising stuff, or you can say we can accuse us of being potty mouth if you so desire. Uh, but if you give us a five star rating, it, it does help us. It just helps us in terms of the business, uh, in terms of, of running the pods, and. Uh, and keeping Guy in Goldleaf. Yeah, it just goes to show how bad my short-term memory is because that's the fourth time in a row that I've asked you whether you've got a message expecting you just to say, stay safe, and instead you launch into the thing that I'm meant to say. So can we end up with you with your normal two-word message? Stay safe, boys and girls. Thank you. See you, everybody. I'm for the